0: Hey everybody, this is Ben dropping you a quick note. Our editors have been working hard to get episodes finished to release on schedule with the reading of the week. Our hope is that listeners will have the chance to engage with the content and share meaningful ideas in their circles of family, friends, and church. In order to meet this goal, this episode has been released with minimal editing. We are looking for additional volunteers to join the team and help with editing, social media management, and content creation. If you are interested, please reach out to us on Facebook or email latterdaypeacestudies at gmail.com. You can also donate to the project, helping us cover the costs of things like website hosting and podcast platforms platform fees. Donations can be made through PayPal by going to our website latterdaypeacestudies.org, clicking Get Involved, and scrolling down to the donate box. Thanks so much to all who have helped out and donated over the years. We are sincerely grateful. Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come, Follow Me. I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come, Follow Me as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our hope is that as we discuss the scriptures, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. All right, welcome back, everybody. We are covering the book of Esther today. And I have an ultra special guest. (laughs) I uh, have my wife, Ashley, here with me today to record on the book of Esther. Welcome, love.
1: (laughs) Hi, everyone.
0: (laughs) So, uh, Ashley decided that when the Book of Esther was coming up, she was interested in discussing this with me. And we have spent the past several days talking about this. So hopefully we will still have some some more things to talk about in the podcast.
1: (laughs) Well, actually, our daughter has been bringing it up a lot because she's been hearing us talk about it and she wanted to know when is this happening? And so it definitely has been a lot of our conversation. I grew up in St. Louis in, I wouldn't say predominantly Jewish, but a, about a third of my classmates were Jewish. And this was one of their favorite stories and holidays. And so it was something that I felt I shared with my classmates growing up. And so I was really excited to try to share that perspective with Ben and with all of you.
0: Here we go with the book of Esther. This is the only book in the Jewish Bible that is not attested in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So you look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, they don't have anything about the book of Esther in it. In fact, the book of Esther first appears in the Greek translation of the Bible, the Septuagint. And so it was at least in terms of the sources, the oldest source that we have is Greek And then there were some translations into Hebrew. Now, it's possible that there were some Hebrew sources that they used to include it in the Septuagint translation, but none of those sources survived or existent in the Dead Sea Scrolls. It kind of makes sense, though, because even... In the Jewish tradition, the book of Esther doesn't really gain canonical status until several centuries later. And so it kind of takes a while for it to gain traction there. So Esther's name is Persian, but her Hebrew name is Hadassah, which means myrtle, like the flower. Esther, the name could come from the goddess Ishtar, which is one of the fertility goddesses, not just of Persia, but of a lot of ancient cultures but it's also possible that it just comes from the persian word for star which was just stara I think I like the second one better. It fits with the actual meta-narrative here in the story that I think we'll get into here in a bit, and brings out some more symbolism, even if maybe it turns out that really it was from Ishtar. I don't know. One note there, though, and and we'll get to this, uh, might mention it again later, not sure if we will, but the name Mordecai actually is derived from Marduk which is the Babylonian god that served in the creation of the world, uh, Tiamat and Marduk. And so you have Marduk and Ishtar, which is like a god and a goddess, and their names become immortalized here with, with Esther and, and Mordecai in this uh, biblical story. Very interesting. So one of the most commonly brought up features of the book of Esther, uh, if we could, could call it a feature, is that there is a conspicuous absence of, of references to God in the story. God, or any reference to God explicitly, does not exist in the entire story. So there's many possible reasons for this.
1: Neither does covenant, temple, sacrifice. A lot of the things that we've come to know throughout the Old Testament to denote a religious practice, the single religious practice that we could pull out is fasting. Um, but
0: Yeah, no, good point. The references to God, as we'll get to would be something very subtle, really only hints, which is a major theme in this book. And, you know, even that is kind of an ironic way of putting it because the theme itself is hinted at. And so it's like hints of hints, very interesting structure, the way that that goes. So some other possible reasons why you might have this story that has no inclusion of references to God. This could be something like a literary device that highlights the godlessness of the story as a whole or of the time period that it sits in. Obviously, we're talking about exile here. The Jews have been taken into exile to Babylon, and then Babylon's been taken over by Persia. So they're in Persia now. This is the exilic period. Could be anywhere from 550 BC to 333 BC. I know that's like over a 200-year time period, but it's set somewhere in that time. I say set because this is... Probably not very historical. The book of Esther is not really a historical book. It's more like a folktale. There's a lot of things in it that cannot be tied to any other historical accounts. Like the name of the king is is not one of the kings of Persia. It's possible that he was actually Xerxes, I think, the first or something like that.
1: Yes, they said that it's possible that it was Xerxes, but that there's also no record of a queen... Vashti, or like that, being deposed in such a way, or a Hebrew queen coming to power.
0: Yeah, or a pogrom, or, a, yeah. you know, anything against the Jews in, in that period. Now, those kinds of things happen from time to time in the ancient world anyway, so it may not have been recorded. But again, there's not. Really many details in this story that would place it historically. So the other reason that you could have this absence of God in the story is that this is a play on the theme of hints, like I talked about just a bit ago, that the subtlety of the story is kind of the point and so we're, we're going to get into this when we talk about some commentary from Aviva Zornberg. But the idea here is that there's a lot of subtlety and hints throughout this story. And this is in contrast to some sort of overt revelation or prophecy that we may have seen up to this point in the scriptures. And so there's, there's a lot of parallels we might draw stylistically between this story and the story of Ruth. Uh, But even Ruth obviously mentions God a whole lot more and is focused on, on that concept. And this tale of Esther really just, again, doesn't get into that at all. As we mentioned before, this is written not originally as scripture, but like a folk tale. And it later became adopted as scripture. It might be something that we could call like historical fiction. In any case, it also appears to be something like an etiological tale that is used to explain the celebration of Purim by the Jews. This holiday may have come to be celebrated and then they needed a reason to explain that.
1: I had actually read that they couldn't find a Persian holiday that did correlate with this exactly. It seemed to be maybe a mesh of some of the holidays, that it could have been that they had adopted some of different traditions, but that there was no set Persian holiday that this was adopted from.
0: Yeah, that probably seems more likely a better explanation of it. But in any case, you have this story that would explain why it is that the Jews are practicing... Purim and celebrating Purim and we get the whole chapter nine at the end of the book of Esther there's just this long explanation of exactly why they are celebrating and what it means there's not always a whole long explanation of what it means but we get that here
1: I think that if you, after looking at, you know, Deuteronomy Numbers and Leviticus where you are laying out the Jewish law and how to live that law and how to celebrate and when to celebrate and when not to celebrate, that this almost seems like a copying or trying to explain or give law to a holiday that they they had been celebrating.
0: So fit it within their not just cultural tradition, but theological tradition in a certain sense. And, And that's how you can then bring it into the scriptural canon and preserve it that way. So other themes we look at here are that of feminine power and how esther is able to exude this feminine power
1: i will say that that's probably another reason that i volunteered to be on this podcast because <laughs> two men speaking on the femininity and power of of, of this woman a uh, sexuality that will definitely come out here might not quite have the authority um, <laughs> <laughs> Um, perspective that a woman's view will bring to it.
0: Yeah. We see uh, another theme of reversals of events. So... You know, you have one thing that's supposed to happen to one person, but then it happens to the other person, or one person is one place at some point and then they get reversed to the other. So this happens over and over in the story. We also have this theme of deliverance. The story of Esther traditionally was actually much more closely associated with the Passover and then became associated specifically with the festival of Purim. But the association with Passover does make sense. There's a lot of similar themes there. But then there's sort of this contrarian theme that Zornberg brings out about this story versus that of Passover, which I thought was totally fascinating. And it's the idea of the deliverance of God in Exodus as contrasted with the apparent godlessness that we talked about before, the conspicuous absence of God in this story and how that comes out in the Jewish Midrash in terms of the idea that God would hide his face. And so I think that's an interesting tie there. Another theme that we were discussing just before we started recording that we threw in there, that my wife brought up, was this idea of the persistence of Jewish identity and this phrase against all odds. So the word Purim is the plural of the word for lot. It's the festival of lots. And what we mean by lots is like something you cast that is like a die, right? You, You cast the dice and this is a game of chance. And this is done by... By Haman in order to determine the date that this pogrom is going to happen. And so we have this festival of lots and what happens instead of the Jews being destroyed is that they triumph over their enemies. And so it's a persistence of the Jewish identity throughout the exile against all odds, against what the rolled dice said they should be. And I think that's just a really intricately placed theme within this story.
1: Well, and the theme is very well summarized at the end of Esther in chapter 9, verse 28. It says that these days should be numbered and kept throughout every generation, every family, every province, every city, and that these days of Purim should not fail from among the Jews, nor the memorial of them perish from their seed. And so that persistence of identity to continue on generation and generation, no matter what, wherever they are.
0: So I probably should have mentioned this earlier, but there is actually a Greek version, an apocryphal version of the book of Esther that makes a few changes to the existing text, but then adds more than a hundred additional verses to the story. I did not know about this at all until I started studying this. And so this version that I have in my Oxford NRSV has a bunch of additional verses to the story, things that happened before, during and after, and then changes a bit to not the actual flow of the story, but how things come about. And these changes are overwhelmingly about God. So they put God into the story, into what happens before, into what happens during. There's a lot of prayer going on. There are dream prophetic dreams, like Mordecai has this dream to find out what's going to happen. There's adherence to the the law, to the Torah. So you know, Esther is much more concerned with obeying the dietary laws and being more humble and reserved. All these sorts of things that are are themes within the Torah, but that seem to be absent in Esther's focus and attitude within the text that we have. And so you look at this apocryphal text and it's very distinct. It's literarily distinct from the Hebrew version or the one that's in the Hebrew Bible. But the Oxford commentary on this even calls the Hebrew text, it quote, extremely corrupt. And I wasn't sure about the word choice. Maybe that's like a scholarly way of putting this. But what they mean by that is that it's been edited many times. There's There are obvious additions or changes that have happened to the text, and you can see it stylistically and also with the word choices that happen and the flow of the story.
1: A quick summary of the story of Esther. We start in Persia, and we have a king who, in the middle of his royal feast, asks for his wife, the queen Vashti, to come and show herself for the people. She refuses, and he decides to have her removed And to cheer himself up, he (laughs) gathers virgins from around, and Esther is one of those. And she is not known to them as a Hebrew. She is presented and spends time in the court and is chosen as queen. She has an uncle who's Mordecai and he serves in the palace. And when she's chosen as queen, he finds out that there was a plot to work against the king. And he tells Esther, together they're able to foil whatever this plot was. We then find out that there's also a kind of a player in this game named Haman, and Haman is second to the king. The king honors him greatly, he tells Mordecai to bow down to him, and Mordecai refuses. So we got some enmity in between Haman and Mordecai through this story. As part of that, Haman decides that all Jews, well, he finds out that Mordecai is a Jew, and decides that he'll get back at him by having all Jews killed, and convinces the king to send out a royal decree that, on a certain date, all of these Jews will be put to death. All the Jews know I guess that this is kind of gonna happen. And Mordecai approaches the palace in sackcloth and ashes, and he waits at the gate and sends word to Esther, and he's not allowed in, so they have this conversation back and forth through servants, and Mordecai implores Esther that she has to do something about this. She sends a reply back that Mordecai and all the people should fast for her, and she would fast for three days, and on that third day, she would go to the king. Uh, This was a big deal because if you went before the king without being summoned, he could put you to death. And so on that third day, she approaches the king and he lowers his scepter, which is accepting her, and asks what she would have of him. And she invites him and Haman, just those two, to a feast in their honor that evening. We have Haman's report of how well that night went. He felt very honored, and as he, he tells his wife later. And then we also have the king later that night was not able to sleep. And he goes through his court records and realizes that Mordecai had been one of those who had helped foil this plot against him earlier and had not been recognized. So he calls Haman to the palace and asks Haman, what would you do for someone who would do a great service for the king? And Haman says, you know, put on robes and have the king honor him and march him through the streets because Haman thought it was for himself. And the king says, great, go do this for Mordecai. So Haman had to do this for Mordecai and really fed this vengeance kind of feeling that he had towards him so Haman later then sets up a gallows specifically for Mordecai to be to be killed on well at this feast Esther had invited both the king and Haman to another feast the next night so they both attend this feast the next night and the king says Esther what is it that you would like and she she says well I would like to not be killed and my people be killed and And the king asks, you know, ask for clarification. She explains the plot that Haman had against her and her people. And the king, in his distraught sense, walks out. And when he comes back in, he sees Haman on the bed with Esther and goes into a rage, thinking that Haman was trying to take advantage of Esther right in front of him. And so then he has Haman hung on the gallows that were erected for Mordecai. So Mordecai then is honored in Haman's place and takes kind of his place as second to the king. And the king sends out a decree that the Jews can now fight their enemies or or should recruit allies and go to war with those. I don't know, I guess go to the war might be a little strong way of putting it, but fight those who were going to kill them. And they do, we read about, a very large slaughter that happens on the day that was decreed that they had all been slaughtered. And then chapter 9 and 10 are a little bit more unique to this book because they talk about how the holiday of Purim should be celebrated. And then it ends with talking about how successful this king was in his reign and Mordecai was given these great honors.
0: Great summary. I wanted to mention here that we did pull a lot of our thoughts and commentary from Aviva Zornberg. So I've mentioned her on the podcast with Christopher several times previously. We've looked at her for stuff on Numbers and Deuteronomy and Ruth. She is a literary scholar that is also a Jew, and she does lectures about the Midrash, which is the rabbinical commentary tradition that is thousands of years old on the Jewish Bible, particularly the Torah, but other things as well. And so she gives lectures on this and then her own view on it that largely integrates a lot of literary tradition. And so she brings a lot of English literature in, she'll bring philosophy in, and it all sort of complements the Jewish Midrash. And she kind of gives her own thoughts on it as well. Anyway, she's extremely profound, very articulate, and, and says a lot of fascinating
1: things. I enjoy listening to her. And I don't mean to put words in her mouth, but she will describe her process of understanding the text. And, and comment on the fact that this is different than what other scholars might see or feel. And I would attribute what she is saying to listening to the spirit, having personal revelation, understand. And that's one of her big themes is read this text to understand it for yourself and pull in all these different ones and, and put it together in a way that's best for you to understand. And I, that resonates with me a lot, so... I would also recommend. Yeah, synagogue.
0: one of the themes that Zornberg brought up when she talked about Deuteronomy was the idea that Moses, when he's speaking to the people, is he's trying to get them to intuit something. He doesn't want to come out and say it. He wants them to intuitively understand what he's saying. And that seems to be a really common theme here. Also in the book of Esther, there seem to be hints at things. There seem to be these things that we're, we're supposed to understand without being explicitly told them. And, and if we understand, Understand them, that's an indication of what I might call our spiritual maturity. And so I think that Zornberg kind of goes into that concept that we are invited to really take a hint, so to speak, as we read through the book of Esther. So I want to go through some of my commentary on some of the verses throughout the scripture. And I think maybe we'll save some of the Zornberg stuff till the end, unless it just like has to be mentioned as, as we're going.
1: Well, with your take the hint, I think the book of Esther is an excellent example because both Mordecai and Esther are struggling with taking a hint, with trying to figure this out on their own. You know, you're kind of saying is, as God has veiled his face. And in order to understand the book of Esther, we also have to understand that more intuitively, not just as the text. So uh, this is a great example of, as you said, taking a hint because we've got it both in the characters and the text, but then also with our relationship with the text.
0: Yeah. And, and I'll probably mention it again, but the lecture by Zornberg on this is called Mere Anarchy is Loosed Upon the World. So I think if you just Googled that, You would find her lecture on it. It's part of some podcast series, but you could get it. Mere Anarchy is Loosed Upon the World. This is Aviva Zornberg's commentary on the book of Esther. So in Esther, I'm going to go to uh, chapter one, the first four verses. And the first four verses say this. I'm going to read from the NRSV. This happened in the days of Ahasuerus. The same Ahasuerus who ruled over one hundred twenty seven provinces from India to Ethiopia. In those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in the citadel of Susa, in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his officials and ministers. The army of Persia and Media, and the nobles and governors of the provinces were present, while he displayed the great wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and pomp of his majesty for many days, one hundred eighty days in. All. Okay, so this is the king of Persia putting on display his power, the majesty of his kingdom, but there's these hints of weakness going on. Why do you need to push this narrative of your power and authority and majesty so greatly unless you have some sort of tenuous grip? On your authority. It seems that this king, no matter how powerful he is in terms of the ability he has to command, there is some incompetence, there is some distrust that is brewing among his subjects. He relies too heavily on his advisors. He doesn't seem to kind of make his own decisions about things. He's he's always deferring. And in fact, you know, he straight up gives Haman full authority, crowns him, puts a robe on him, and then does the same to Mordecai, right? That's the reversal. And the idea here is that he is really passing the buck or passing the authority to others. And this starts off right off the bat with this story of Ashti, who won't even come at his summons to this great banquet festival that he's throwing as a display of his power and his wife won't even come. And so this is like right off the bat, a slap in the face to his authority and he can't let it stand, but he doesn't even know what to do about it. Right? This is already showing that he has this tenuous grip on authority. He immediately goes to his advisors, I don't know what to do because my wife won't obey me. And <laughs> It's like, obviously, if you have to go to these lengths, there's some other problem going on. You don't have authentic power. You don't have organic authority. You've got bigger issues than the fact that you think people aren't obeying you. There's something going on below the surface here, behind the scenes.
1: With this point, I love what we see that Esther brings to him and to his relationship. Because in contrast of Vashti refusing him and being removed and making him feel weak or seem weak, then we go to later on in the texts, Esther treats him like a king. Invites him specially to her banquet and recognizes him and his power and defers
0: to his authority.
1: Defer to defers to his authority and bolsters him. And in that, I see that night of not being able to sleep and going over the cur- the court records. I see that as an awakening to his power responsibility. And the first thing that he does with that is to then act or try to act. Again, he still defers to Haman on how to act, but oh, I have to recognize this person who serves me. I I need to do something more. And so we do see this change in the text and a good example of, again, the power of femininity and what that can bring in a relationship.
0: Yeah. Esther uh, has some archetypal feminine stuff going on here. There's a lot to... Analyze within her character, I think. It says multiple times in the text that she's admired by all who see her, and the king instantly falls in love with her. And it seems you can't be in the same room with Esther and not love her. She is the star. That's her name. She's a star. She's shining. So, to the point of this femininity, the power that she has. Like you were saying, it's like she is giving birth to the king. Right?
1: (laughs) So... I was trying to put this into words earlier. It's it's a little difficult because in our language and in our culture, having somebody support can be also seen as subjugation. And especially since we're talking about a slave here, it's very difficult to... Mm. We're walking a fine line on talking about her motivations and what she can do. But we're also talking about what the one power she really did have um, and the power that Vashti also had and refused to dis- display is really where that goes. And how to wield that. Seems like Esther's
0: able to do it more subtly, right? Yes. That that Vashti was more overt about it. But Esther's Genius and her skill and her beauty, and her, you know, what's admired about her is that she wields that power in a more powerful way by being more subtle.
1: By being more subtle, by being more in the background where she can help. Veiled, right? Veiled, yes, hidden. She had shooed not her people, is one of the things that. It- yeah, yeah, scissors. she doesn't. yet yeah, it, her
0: identity as a Jew is not even known. Yes. So that's a so, good point. Like, so there's, there's some veils going on here. There's yeah.
1: a lot that's hidden here, but she uses this from behind the veil to support, to expound, and to support the positive features instead of of the negative. Nurture. Yeah, nurture. That's a great word. Yes.
0: <laughs> Trying to pull out all these feminine <laughs> <know>. words,
1: right?
0: <laughs> so next in the story, we have that part where there is this plot to kill the king. Now, Mordecai is uh, ostensibly some sort of court official. That's why he's always hanging around the palace and at the gate. There's certain times he refuses to go in, but he's he's there. He's privy to what's kind of going on. He understands the workings of the, the politics of the court and everything. And he seems to get word of either over here or or get rumor of this plot to assassinate the king by two of these eunuchs. But the idea that I kind of saw here is that somehow this plot is happening in a place that is more public than you might think. If people are going to plot to assassinate the king, they should be, you know, down a dark alley or or you know somewhere else that they can't be found out. But somehow they feel comfortable enough with their plot to do it in a place that could be overheard or found out. Now, this could be, you know, just kudos to Mordecai for his, you know, intelligence network or something. Or it could be, again, the idea that the king has sort of a tenuous grip on his authority and that these people aren't really afraid of who might overhear because they think that plenty of people might share their sentiments. And so I think that, again, what we're seeing here is that he's starting to lose his grip on this. In the beginning of the story, the verses that I read, it talks about him sitting on the throne. And one of the things that Zornberg mentions from the Midrash is that he's sitting on the throne, but he's barely on it. Like he's about to fall off, Right is kind of the idea here. Again, he could fall off the throne at any moment. And so a lot of the things that we see in the background with the story of the king, the things that he's doing, are to try to uh, bolster his authority and his power and tell people, no, I'm king. I'm the one wearing the crown, right? Uh, But ultimately that power kind of seems to be slipping away. And the point that we were talking about with Esther is that she is somehow able to complement that authority in a way that, that helps him come into who he's supposed to be, right?
1: Which we see at the end of Esther. And one of the commentaries I was reading was saying that chapter 10 seems to be superfluous. Like, why are they mentioning what that the king is doing well and has the tributes and laid at the power and might and then bringing up the fact that Mordecai was this great man. To me, this really shows that Esther took this king in this tenuous situation who probably would have lost well definitely would have lost his life without Mordecai Haman would have probably ended up ruling the kingdom and probably deposing him in some way but she took that situation and set him squarely on the throne yeah. and helped him rise to be what he could be and in doing that secure safety for her people and for herself
0: I didn't think I was going to mention this but in the apocryphal book of- of Esther that you know mentions God a lot it's the the Greek version there's actually the implication that Haman knew the two eunuchs that were plotting against the king and that he might have been part of the plot mm-hmm. And one of the main reasons he was upset with Mordecai was that Mordecai found out the plot and got these two put to death, but that Haman was able to somehow escape that. And so obviously it kind of fits with the story, but it's it's not necessarily implied in the version we have here, just in that apocryphal version. So what Haman does here is uh, he decides to cast the lots, right? So he's determining the day that he wants to carry out this edict. So the idea of casting lots, there's a lot going on here. <laughs> A lot, huh? So this is obviously an ancient form of divination, right? Trying to determine what the best path is, what's in the stars, right? But you cast the lots to find this out. Now it turns out this is all over in all kinds of traditions. This is actually very common within the Jewish tradition as well. It's common within our church history. We just don't really talk about it. It's in the Book of Mormon. You know, Nephi and Laban. They cast lots to see who's supposed to go in to see Laban. So they're like, this is all over Jewish culture and and ancient culture. But the idea here is that it's not known when this could happen. And then sort of the meta idea is that there's sort of an arbitrariness to the cruelty of existence, right? That like at any point someone can just die and there's not really any reason for it at all. And so we have this occasion when the arbitrariness of existence turns against the Jewish people, or it appears to, right? That's how the the story is going. That's where the plot is headed. And what ends up happening is this injustice that is going to happen is completely turned on its head. This is the reversal here. And so the whole theme here of the story of the lots of Purim is that even though the odds really are against the people, again, we talked about how their identity in exile somehow seems to survive against all odds. It survives. Another part I'm going to mention out of chapter 3, this is again about the king and how he wields his power. So I'm going to go to verse 9 of chapter 3, and this is actually Haman talking with the king, and this is just sort of another commentary on the king and and where his power lies. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued for their destruction, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, so that they may put it into the king's treasuries. It kind of shows how the king is really easily manipulated, and it's done by vagaries. Okay, so the king doesn't really know who these people are that are being killed. He just knows that it's supposed to bring him more power. And you kill these people and you take all of their goods and riches, and it's going to add, he says, 10,000 talents of silver to the treasury, which is uh, an exaggerated, absurd amount. I think the commentary said if we were to translate this into modern terms, it was like $100 million or something like that. And so, obviously, Haman is trying to manipulate the king with these vagaries, and he's easily manipulated. Haman then is presented as the villain of the story here, obviously, and his descendancy is shown. He is a descendant of Agag. All right, so, King Agag was the adversary of King Saul. He was the one that Saul was supposed to kill and annihilate all the people and everything like that. And then, so Haman is said, he's the enemy of the Jews. Well, Agag was the enemy of the Jews at the time or of the Israelites. Mordecai is a descendant of Saul, it says. And Saul was a Benjamite. Mordecai is a Benjamite. Esther is a Benjamite. And so This is kind of bringing that sort of that old rivalry or something, kind of pushing it into this story. And we're going to see it again. This is referenced again in chapter 9 when it talks about the retribution that is taken upon the enemies of the Jews. And this is all sort of couched in the narrative of the conquest of Canaan in the book of Joshua. When we get into chapter four, I think we mentioned this already, you know, the discussion between Mordecai and Esther is something like, hey, you need to go and talk with the king. And she says, if I go and talk with the king, I'm going to die. You know, do you think I just commit suicide? And Mordecai just says, well, this is, you're going to die either way. And so you have to do this, you know, you have to muster the courage to to do it.
1: Well, and the way that he puts it in the scriptures is this famous line of verse 14. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Who knows? Maybe this is why you've been placed here.
0: In chapter 5, this is the time when Esther decides to actually go into the king. And the way that the sequence of events here happens is another display, I think, of Esther's feminine power. I read this as some type of seduction going on because Esther first goes to the king and she just stands there. Oh, well,
1: I think she has to just stand there. It's <laughs> not like she's trying to use this uh as...
0: Feminine wiles. <laughs> yes,
1: she's not using her feminine wiles. She's she's a slave and yeah. she she has to stand there. She has to wait on the king and wait on what he is going to do. Uh,
0: yeah, but it's an invitation either way. Like she's inviting him to reciprocate to her, right? It's a, it's obviously a step of bravery, but, you know, she's all dressed up and, and everything like that. And then when he, he does ask her, she doesn't outright tell him what she wants.
1: You know, I think it's important to back up just a little bit here and look at fasting and what had happened these three days before because if we are talking about her feminine wiles and her maybe trying to seduce the king we look at what she just spent the last three days doing and what she spent the last three days doing was not eating Hmm. and so that's not the best way to try to, you know, impress a man, to look your best. And so if that is truly what she was relying on, she didn't do a very good job of that. But to me, that shows a reliance on a god. She was trying to activate this deity that she debated about how how much she actually knew this. They were in exile, how much practice there was. But the, she knew that this practice of trying to have more divine help was fasting. And that at this point in her life, she needed all the help she could get. And she was not gonna get them purely from, you know, seducing her husband it was from divine intervention and so i must have as much help as i can i'm going to fast three days have everyone else you can fast also i assume and put in their prayer but it's it is not in the text it's
0: hinted right that's the that's the theme here is that all these things are hinted at
1: and so then then waiting i have done everything that i can and i'm gonna move forward in faith and wait and see. And then on top of that, as you say, we she doesn't just come out and say, you've just sent out this edict and you're going to kill me and all of my, my friends, so don't do that. She st- invites him to a banquet, yeah. you know, draws this out. And I see it as a way to empower him, a way to help him step into the kingship that he has, as we've talked about, really been had a tenuous grasp on. Instead of telling him what to do, inviting him to come to that conclusion himself.
0: Yeah, I would say I don't see this, when I say seduction, I don't see this as a sexual seduction. I see this as another She's hinting, she's piquing his interest, not in a sexual sense, but in a, oh, we'll come and see. And it's just like a little bit at a time right? It's veiled. And so again we could we could say well this is akin to or analog to like a sexual seduction but I think that the idea here is that just she has seductive power and but in this instance she's not using it in that way. She's using it in a way to lead him into you know like you were saying leading it into an understanding or persuading him to give weight to her opinion. That if she would have just come out right then and said it, she has not built up that relationship yet. Well, and so, inviting him to the thing and then inviting him to another, this is creating this relationship. She hasn't seen him in 30 days, it yes, says. Yeah. And, and she didn't really know him then, right? Like, it's creating this relationship that then there becomes more of of an actual trust and he's more likely to do that. That's what I mean by a seduction, right? This is a a persuasion.
1: Well, and we see from the history, from the beginning, from what's happened before, this king, if he is asked to do something, he will not make a decision. He will ask others and go to others for that decision. And so she has to remove him from those others and make her his, Confident, and so that that yeah. moves forward in a way that again empowers him to make these decisions, or at least take her into confidence.
0: Yeah, she does say only you and Haman, yes. <laughs> right? Like she doesn't want these other advisors around that he's going to turn to. She wants him to trust her, and then to trust himself, his own decisions on on what would be right about that thing so i think that's a really really good point so right after this first banquet we have the king who can't sleep like i imagine you know again i imagine he's thinking about esther what does she want? What, it, what is it that she needs? You know, he can't get her out of her mind. I, again, I'm not necessarily thinking there's like some sexual thing going on here, but he is taken with her in a way that he didn't think he would be. And so there's that going on. Like he's, he's wondering what's going on. He's awakened, like you were saying, he can't sleep. He's awakened to who he's supposed to be as a king. And he's like, what do I need to do? I need to figure out what's been going on in my court. I need to understand. So bring me the records. Let's read through them. I want to understand what's going on here. So he discovers the Mordecai thing. I think that that fits really, really well with what's going on below the surface in the story here. This is a recurring motif in other parts of scripture, especially with kings of Persia. So like this happens with uh, the prophet Daniel, the kings that he consults with, they have trouble sleeping. And so he talks to them about their dreams and he talks to them about, you know, when he's in the lion's den, the king that, that had to put him there, like he can't sleep. Right. And that's another example of the king's edict, right? Like even though Daniel's his friend, he can't say, well, don't put him in the lion's den. Well, I said it, it has to be done. And so even though that's not corroborated by other sources in the ancient world here, the Jewish view of Persian law is that once once the King says it, it, that can't be revoked. All he can do is something else to sort of try to counteract that. It's like, you've taken a medicine. It's already in your system. You can't get the poison out. You have to give the antidote. What we have here that follows in the the chapters is the whole story of the Jews that are going to be destroyed and then that edict that turns that on its head and the Jews can gather their allies around them, and can fight back. The text says, in the KJV, it says, many became Jews. In the NRSV, it says, many professed. And what the commentary says about this is, it wasn't that people converted to Judaism, it was that they allied with them. But there's quite a bit of hyperbole going on here in the destruction of the enemies of the Jews. This is rhetorical. This doesn't... (laughs) Well, I mean, it's pretty well established that this is not a historical incident. This didn't really happen. And so you're telling a story and part of the story is to demonstrate how this narrative got flipped on its head and that the Jewish identity will persist Against all odds, odds. and so what is against all odds? It's when you roll the the die, and it's a hundred side die, and you get that highest number or whatever, right? You know, like so that's why this is all turned.
1: Yeah, the expectation was for them all to be wiped out. And so to turn it on its head, they wipe everyone else out.
0: The Jewish victory here is reminiscent in places of the conquest of Canaan. You have statements like no one could withstand them. And then there's references to King Agag. And they also, when they destroy their enemies, they do not plunder them. Okay. So this is also a reversal because the whole thing that Haman says is, hey, we're going to kill all the Jews and we're going to steal all their stuff and it's going to make you much richer, king. But when the Jews fight back and destroy their enemies, they don't plunder them. They don't take all of their stuff. So this is a direct reference back to Joshua and judges when they were conquesting the land. They were not allowed to take the things, unless God specifically said they could. Those things were chedim. They were supposed to be dedicated to God, not to their own enrichment necessarily.
1: Well, and showing that these people were living the law of Moses. They're following the tradition, and it's surviving in the wilderness, these times that they've been removed, that there are still these traditions that do survive and supposedly help the fact that they survive against all odds. Some of the reasons that they are this peculiar people and always persist.
0: Yeah, so here I'm going to go read the first verse of chapter 9. Now in the 12th month, which is the month of Edar, on the 13th day when the king's command and edict were about to be executed, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain power over them, but which had been changed to a day when the Jews would gain power over their foes. So I'm going to get Christological here. So here we have something that we could say is a type of Christ. Now we talked already about Esther being the star, and we're going to talk about some of Zornberg commentary that kind of brings this out a little bit more. But here we have Esther and Mordecai to a certain extent as types of Christ in this story. That Just at the time when things were darkest and all hope had been lost, the whole thing is turned on its head and the enemies are defeated. This the narrative of Christ that you have his death and after three days, everything looks the darkest they've lost christ is dead and then there's the resurrection and he ascends to heaven and triumphs over all his foes this is the archetypal story here and this is what's happening you know the meta narrative here within this story of the victory over the enemies even if we set aside like all the bloodshed and stuff that's used as a literary device here that's the the structure and theme of this story
1: And you see it at the three days, that culmination standing in the court, not knowing what is going to be happening and waiting for that edict to come saying that you live. The scepter. Um, The scepter coming. Yeah. It could
0: go either way, right? It's the rolling of the die.
1: Yes, it's another one of those casting of the lots. Am I going to live or am I going to die in this instant? And if I die in this instant, then all is lost for all my people. But if I live, then what do I do? The lots have to be cast again. Is the king going to listen to me? Is he going to move forward? And so we we constantly see that veiling and unveiling through the story, through small steps, and of course, acts of faith that help to pull the, the deliverance idea through here the resurrection the idea that when we are in some of our darkest times that that light can can shine and and be something that we can follow but we still have to continue in that way and not not lose hope
0: yeah so i want to get back to that with some zornberg commentary but i want to go kind of back to the beginning of how she goes into some things and we've mentioned this before with her she really takes you on a journey through the midrash and the text and where you're going to go and where you end up is not obvious. <laughs> and so from my perspective, it's not possible for me to take you on that same journey. I just I can't do it and there's not time to do it. And she does it way better anyway. There'd be no point in me doing it. So I highly recommend that you go and listen to her lecture. It's called Mere Anarchy is Loosed Upon the World. It's her commentary on the book of Esther. I'm sure you'll find it if you Google it. She starts off by saying that her view of the book of Esther is a tragic view. She sees that, yes, there's this festival of of Purim, which is supposed to be about celebration and laughter and joy, but that's really a veil or the other side to the coin of what she says is an ocean of tears the mourning of the people and all that they have gone through is simply being veiled by this celebration but really what's going on underneath the surface is mourning is sadness, is tears. God has delivered them from Egypt, and there's this whole period of their history in Scripture where he does these great miracles, and there's prophets and prophecy. And here she says we've come to a point, a pivotal moment in the Jewish narrative where we are switching from that I am the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to something else to a God who says something like, I will surely hide my face. And this comes out in many ways, but overall within the book, we see that there is this conspicuous absence of God, and that there is this Jewish sense that God has in some way abandoned them. This happens in the exile. And then if we move forward in history, the countless pogroms that happened against Jewish people in many different countries, and then within the 20th century, we have the Holocaust, the unspeakable moment of tragedy against the Jewish people. And so, again, there's this sense that even in the book of Esther, that they're moving into a time in which God is hiding His face from them and that things are falling apart, that there's no king. I mean, remember back in the book of Judges says there was no king in in Israel, that things aren't being kept in order. There's something about the world that they're living in that is lacking God. Remember that there's no mention of God and he just doesn't seem to be present except in hints.
1: Trying to clarify this, she quotes from the laws of Purim and I'm glad because she actually attaches this because it was not something notes, I ad- like
0: show notes n- yeah. yeah
1: the notes because this is not something i was familiar with i was familiar with the festival of purim my my friends all enjoyed it was one of their favorite holidays but to see what she calls this tragic view as ben was explaining was a very different perspective and she Talks about that all prophetic books and sacred writings will cease during the messianic era except for the book of Esther.
0: I think she says something like they will cease to be relevant.
1: Um, to be like, cited in public is what yeah, it says. It yeah, like we won't, we won't reference won't be, course, them as scriptures. And so that didn't make sense quite to me that she was bringing this up. But she clarifies and says, Although ancient troubles will be remembered no longer as it is written. Um, and then she quotes from Isaiah. The troubles of the past are forgotten and hidden from my eyes. The days of Purim will not be abolished as it is written. These days they will continue as as... It's quoted in Esther 9, verse 28. The quote from Isaiah is what kind of struck me. The troubles of the past are not forgotten or hidden from my eyes. The remembrance that God sees all that's happened. This past is moved forward, but then in the restoration, which we see has already happened, but the Messiah coming and this fulfillment of times, we are able to move past the trauma and into this personal relationship with God where we are able to take this onto our individual level instead of the community level that was so prevalent before exile. So moving from the days where This was a very community-oriented religion to a time that we have a personal relationship and make those personal decisions, as Esther is showing us.
0: To me, that kind of evokes the statement of Moses where he says, I would that all were prophet, that all in Israel prophets. And so the idea here, yeah, that, that each individual is able to pick up on the hints that God drops. There doesn't have to be this great prophecy that is given to everybody because each individual has their own intuition and understanding. And, you know, within our tradition, this might be akin to something like, you know, the gift of the Holy Ghost that we receive personal revelation and we're able to to understand that. And I think there's a lot of parallels there. Within some of the Midrashic commentary on Esther, there is this sense, like I was talking about, that God has hidden his face as a punishment for the way that the people have acted, right? That's why they've gone into exile. That's why they can't feel or hear the prophets anymore. But yet there's still some, there's hints of these things going on. So Zornberg talks about this. Her view is not that the idea here that's being presented is that God is hiding his face to punish because of sin. God is not hiding his face to punish because of sin. The hiding of the face is an invitation to us as individuals, like you were just talking about, to come into a personal understanding of God in our lives. That personal revelation, or as Zornberg was talking about it, the hints. Pick up on the hints and the subtleties within that. And then that seems to be what Esther is displaying.
1: I've looked at the whole Old Testament as God trying to teach his people how to come to him. And especially when we're talking about Israelites, you know, from Egypt and Moses having lost this relationship, lost the covenant and having to learn how to do that again. And they constantly fail. You know, it's over and over and over. And the Lord has to back up and give step by step by step to try to lead them here. And they're driven out again. They're taken captive. And finally, in this captivity... We have this glimpse through Esther and Mordecai of that personal relationship that we're seeing, of something that the Lord was trying to cultivate in his people. When we've taken away the big, flashy, the sacrifices, these things that that are, are in front of your face, and taken it to a place where it's hidden, where she's not allowed, where she hasn't declared her lineage, she's kept that to herself, but has to figure out a way to live that, she does and is able to be true to herself, even in slavery. She takes that and moves forward, and as I say, as I see it empowers a kingdom, an entire kingdom and race.
0: The climax of the story, the seminal moment of the story, as we've talked about multiple times already and analyzed in different ways, which I think Zornberg gives some particularly fascinating commentary, is that moment when Esther stands in the court and is confronted with the possibility that she will not be accepted. Zornberg quotes some midrash here, where obviously in the text it doesn't say anything about Esther praying. But when you're reading the story and thinking about what's happening, I don't think anybody that would put their their cells in the place of Esther, I don't think anybody could possibly imagine Esther not praying in this moment, right? She's just been fasting and she's there standing. How could she not be praying? And yet there's this midrash talking about how Esther is in this moment praying. As she stands there, this moment comes when she cannot feel God anymore. She doesn't know if it's really going to happen. All of these stories she's been told about her culture and fasting and all of this stuff that she had hoped would give her the strength, there's a moment, this little moment, when that all goes away. And she prays and she says, and I'm not I'm not going to get the Hebrew right, so I'm not going to say it, but she says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This is the words that Christ, Jesus, speaks on the cross. In Psalms, there's this statement, and then Christ says it on the cross. In the Midrash commentary about Esther, this is what she says. In the moment when she thinks all hope could be lost, she says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And still proceeds.
1: I imagine that the king hesitated. Mm. allowing time. And, you know, even if you look in the, the King James Version, it says that, and it was so when the king saw Esther, the queen, standing in the court, that she obtained favor in his sight, and the king held out the scepter. I see that there was, she's standing there and not she appeared and he allowed it. You know, it's, she stood there and he had to think. And we've already established this is not a king that's very good at thinking. And so I'm sh- quick to anger. <laughs> yeah, quick to anger. And he's sitting there deciding what does he do? This woman has appeared before me without my consent. And how do I want to do this? And I am sure that, well, I imagine that there was time. And in that time, she thought she failed.
0: Okay. So again, I'm going to reference the apocryphal book of Esther. I didn't think I was going to, but it is to this point, there's an interesting part here that talks about when Esther comes in to him. Lifting his face, flushed with splendor, he looked at her in fierce anger. The queen faltered and turned pale and faint and collapsed on the head of the maid who went in front of her. Then God changed the spirit of the king to gentleness, and in alarm he sprang from his throne and took her in his arms until she came to herself. So here we have this moment, right, that might bear this concept out. But the point I think that's profound that Zornberg was making is that this is Esther's heroism. This is her moment of courage, is that she truly feels within her heart she prays God has forsaken me, but still proceeds. And that's that moment of courage. She's the star. She's the light that shines in the darkness. That's why I say she's the type of Christ in this story, because she's taking a step, proverbial step or or metaphorical step, into the darkness. She's alone. That step is what stirs the miracle of him, the scepter. And so in the apocryphal version, it has the king, his Heart being changed by God, right? God changing him.
1: See, I had always seen her as beloved by her people, that standing before the king alone, taking on her people's. Fate, yeah. um, more than identity, mm, but like mm. this is... And so that in a type of Christ that not just with her people, but trying to be that advocate because she fasted with them. They were united in this identity, but she was the one who stepped forward. The lamb approaching the slaughter yeah. and and carrying her people's fate with her. And then feeling so alone after being so united. That's where I see Christ.
0: It is there. You know, that's what I found so fascinating about this story is that in a book that has this, what we've said, conspicuous absence of God, there yet are all these hints that God is there. And the invitation seems to be that We can find God if we look for him. If we are willing to take the step into the darkness, even when we think God has abandoned us, that we will still find something.
1: That inherent power that is in each of us that can be accessed at any point in time, that all it has to be is is recognized and seen, the Lord will magnify and allow it to be our salvation.